When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On Commons People this week. It's not good enough for us now to say to Remainers, you lost, get over it. Boris begins his love bombing of Remainers, but will it work? This was a big exercise in hypocrisy, frankly, from the Foreign Secretary. Seems not. No organisation is too big or I'll work with them too complex for me to hesitate to remove funding from them. What next for Oxfam after the aid worker scandal? All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast. With me, Owen Bennett, and this week I'm joined by Mr Paul War. Hello, Paul. Hello. I'm joined by Kate Forrester. Hello, Kate. Hello. And Rachel Wermuth. How are you, Rachel? Hello. How are you doing, on? I am very... Thank you. You're the only one that asked. I'm lovely. Thank no, you. No, no one asked. You're asking. I'm always chipper, aren't I? Yes. Well, someone else is a bit chipper today. Mr Boris Johnson, wasn't he? Nice segue. Thank you very much. You were there at his speech. Let's have a few clips, shall we, of Boris's attempt to love bomb Remainers on Valentine's Day. Here he is saying why people shouldn't just get over it. It's not good enough for us now to say to Remainers, you lost, get over it. Uh, because we must accept that the vast majority are actuated by entirely noble sentiments. A real sense of solidarity with our European neighbours and a desire for the UK to succeed. All I am saying is that by going for Brexit, we can gratify those sentiments. And in his speech, he talked a lot about what Brexit is, but he also told us what Brexit is not. And I absolutely refuse to accept the suggestion that it is some un-British spasm of bad manners. It's not some great V sign from the cliffs of Dover. It is the expression of a legitimate and natural desire for self-government of the people, by the people, for the people. And that is surely not some reactionary, faragist concept. And Boris Johnson, the man who, of course, led the Leave campaign in many people's eyes, uh, was he really the right person to win people back to uh, supporting this great vision of Britain's future outside the EU, especially given previous statements that he'd made? But I think I've always been extremely moderate in my language uh, and, 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 and loving and caring. And that's, that's, that, that is my intention. Uh, before we go on to the response to this, uh, Mr Paul War, you were there. I mean, I watched it and for me, it looked like a load of old nonsense. Tell me why I'm wrong or right. I, th- I think you are wrong, actually, in the what? sense that at least he tried to make the reconnection with with not just Leave voters, but also he tried to make a bit of an attempt at connecting with Remain voters. And you've got to sort of say, you know, that's what a politician, a national politician should be doing. He should be trying to unify the nation. It's what Theresa May, to be frank, should have been doing since Brexit. She she had some throwaway line last year about, um, I'm doing my best to bring the country together. Well, actually, there's been no evidence whatsoever of doing that. So at least he deserves some credit for trying, Like, let's be honest. But also, I think he deserves credit for the fact that the way he constructed the speech 
actually was quite clever about reconnecting with that sense of why we had a Brexit vote at all. Why did 18 million people vote for it? And he he did what he's good at as a journalist, and he, he sort of explored that and expanded on it. And basically, he, there was a nice section, I thought, on the best bits of the speech where he said... Um, if we're going to accept laws, then we need to know who's making them and with what motives. And we need to be able to interrogate them in our own language. And we must know how they came to be an authority over us and how we can remove them. All those things are basic things about being governed by someone else. And he was basically saying, look, they're all faceless people in Brussels. You know who I am. You don't know who your MEP is. You don't know who these guys in Europe is. That's one of the main reasons people voted out. But is the problem not that that was a very good speech to make during the referendum campaign. All the, we've all heard those arguments, be it Remainer or Leavers. Now, people have made their minds up on the EU referendum based on those arguments, and some yep. people obviously decided to remain in. Surely what he should have done in this speech is set out, right, Northern Ireland, this is how we're going to deal with it. Citizens' rights, this is how we're going to deal with it. He talked a lot about the wonder of freedom of movement and going and falling in love in other countries. You're about, we're about to lose freedom of movement to 27 other countries. Surely it would have been better to move it on. Was this not just a bit of a lazy speech from Boris Johnson in that respect? Well, I, I, I don't think so, actually, because I think that, yes... There are glaring holes in it. Of course, Boris isn't a details man. You know, it's all big picture, and that's his fatal weakness. There's no question about that. There was nothing about how you ever keep a hard border or avoid a hard border in Northern Ireland. There was no detail and customs union. There was an interesting section where he floated some ideas about um, fishing our own fish, having our own stem cell research, and maybe even changing the rules on the city and financial regulation, which could open a whole can of worms, to be honest, if we have lower regulation than Europe on the things that, let's be honest, caused the financial crash in the first place. So there was there was some attempt to detail, but there were massive gaps in it. There's no question. Look, I'm not I'm not propagandising for Boris Johnson. But I, I thought he deserves a bit of credit for making that emotional connection, given that a lot of it is about reason. I have an observation. Go on. And it's this. Are you excited? Go on. Um, <laughs> That's not what Paul's, do. Paul's comment then about him talking about who makes the laws and how can we get rid of them. Is that not very, very Tony Benn? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is. It's, it's, it's the left, yeah, it's the left in case of Brexit, isn't it? The That's, that was one it's of his five questions, wasn't it? Yeah, you're To right. people in power. How yeah. can we get rid of you? Is the last Are you one. Are going to do a Tony Benn impression? No. Okay. <laughs> I thought everyone could do a Tony Benn That's impression. That's it now. Like Sorry. Sean Connery. Can I, ask, can I ask a question? Did Push anyone me. laugh at his jokes? Because it well, didn't sound like on the telly that they did. <laughs> That's a very good point. Very few people did. And he was desperate. You know what he's like? Boris essentially is desperate. He's needy. People forget this. He's needy for attention. He's like major politicians you know, with big egos. They want the people to laugh at their jokes. They want people to admire them. They want them to be recognised as a big beast. And, he, you know, and so he's needy. And what <laughs> he looked kind of sort of crestfallen when people didn't laugh at some of those gags. Some of them, the gags were pretty risque. You know, I mean, the Thai sex trade and dogging. I mean, yeah. it was a bit, you bit know. Much. I just think the people at the moment, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a humorless PC yes. snowflake. Okay, right, move on. Um, <laughs> but I just think people at the moment, Remainers that I speak to, they, they, they don't want all this rhetorical flourish. They want answers to yeah. questions about their concerns. And I feel like if Boris Johnson had kind of thrown themselves thrown himself on their mercy a little bit and delivered a serious speech for once in his life, it reminded me of the speech he gave at a party conference when he wandered around the stage with a brick in his hand. Yeah. Just after Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, talked about the dangers of terrorism. I thought he might have played well in the hall, but it, outside, you looked like a, like a weirdo. And I felt like today was the opportunity for Boris to... I think he, I think actually he is the right man to do it. I think Because we knew that he was one way or the other on this anyway. I think he, he could be the right man to point out, okay, this is how we're going to make Brexit work. 
and he just failed with every word that he uttered today. In my in my experience, well, there was no use. So you're right, and they failed to to come up. But the problem is, it's phenomenally complicated. I, that's why we haven't <laughs> had any answers yet from anyone in the cabinet on how you're going to square the circle. Get, shouldn't get a free pass if being complicated. No, I agree. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, but. At the same time, as I say, some of the most interesting passages, and don't forget this was cleared by number 10, were those little hints about, you know, possibly having uh, control over certain rules and alignment with some rules. Some Brexiteers in the audience actually afterwards said to me they were slightly worried by Boris opening the door to alignment on things like, you know, vacuum cleaner recognition he and all that He went round stuff. in a circle on that, didn't he? Because he said we should have alignment with it. Then he talked about a James Dyson Hoover, which yeah. didn't match, and therefore that was the reason why we should leave. And I thought... I know, that was... Again, it was confused, because yeah. he probably is confused. And you get the impression <laughs> he's arguing with himself as Absolutely. much as anything I else. I totally agree with you. you know, yeah. but he's trying to convince himself that this is fine to be associated But with. let's be honest, the one thing that came out of it, and that a lot of people... Thankfully, journalists went away happy about was that there was a news line which is about Boris and his own future. Would he walk? And he was asked by sons Tom Newton Dunn, you know, would you consider resigning this year if things don't go your way? And he refused to answer the question. And what was amazing, now I understand that Boris is very upset, not just at um, the fact that we've done that story, but other people have done that story. He's he's lost his rag a bit this afternoon he? when he's seen the headline saying, oh, Boris ref- refuses to rule out resigning. Should've well, should've hello. Out <laughs> hello. You should, you, it's in your gift, mate, to make it clear. <laughs> and guess what? I mean, what amazes me is this is a guy who's a verbal gymnast. He is very eloquent. He's a scholar. He's a former very very witty journalist who knew, knows how to use words and yet he was stumped when he was asked a very simple question about would you refuse would you rule out resigning straight ball good line and length there were yeah. loads of things he could have said he could have said look i'm part of a big team i'll always be part of the big team yeah. or he could have said i stand by the prime minister whatever he yeah. could have said loads of things i'm not going to resign i mean that's a good yeah, one yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Been great, you know <laughs> but he didn't and surely it wasn't that unexpected that exactly. that question was going to be asked. <laughs> it's not exactly a curveball, is no. it? No. Um, Why didn't anyone ask him about the NHS? You know, the bus. No, uh, that didn't seem to come up. Oh, you know why? I think because uh, everyone's kind of parked the bus, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, no, it, it will never be believed by a lot of people on that. And he still tries to resurrect it and doesn't run away from it. And actually, you know, if t- Jeremy Hunt does indeed get some extra cash for the NHS after Brexit, then um, Boris will probably claim victory. But no, that wasn't an issue today. Mm. Obviously, Brexit is not just happening at policy exchange. Where Boris Johnson was giving this speech in Westminster, it's going to affect all over the country. And Rachel, you uh, journeyed up to is it one of the most the ward that's deemed to be most affected by Brexit. Is that what it was? No, no, no. It's the ward that mo- voted most heavily in favour of Brexit. Right, so okay. it's the most Brexity ward in the entire country. And where was that? Um, it's in. It's called Brambles and Thorntree, and it's it's like a suburb of Middlesbrough. Basically, eighty three percent. Eight, wow. that's big. Yeah. Um, what did you on your travels? What did you what, come tell us some tales in the <laughs> wild lands? Um, there's no big shift because um, uh, the reason I, I went up in the first place was the, these leaked Brexit impact um, reports, which said that the northeast is going to be by far and away the worst affected area, and um, there was no massive shift from. Brexit towards Remain and what did come up was the bus a lot of people said you know a lot of people feel betrayed about the bus did they bring up kind of unprompted yes yeah yeah the the the, the woman who managed the community center there uh Linda uh, she said that yeah she she gets people coming in all of the time and saying to her um I only voted because um, they said they were going to give 350 million to the NHS a week um that is interesting yeah um and yeah they feel 
pretty optimistic about Brexit overall, despite the the forecasts. There's no big is big that shift. Because did you get the sense that they're just kind of blocked all these forecasts out because they've heard this project fear stuff for so long? Yeah, you know the economy didn't completely collapse after the referendum vote. So they're just like we're another load of of sort of number pushers in in Whitehall. Yeah, they they're all as far as they're concerned experts, just pretty far away from from their lives. Um, but I would also kind of say that people generally weren't exercised about Brexit as an issue. It was living standards, it was um, the health service, public services more generally, um, why there was no new big employer in their community. It wasn't, they're not interested in Brexit. Much more micro stuff, not macro stuff. Yeah. yeah. Did you get the sense, because obviously a lot of the media class down here in that London talk up, oh, there's another another referendum and Remain would win and I've always thought that's nonsense. Did you get that sense from there that people haven't changed their minds? Uh, There was no appetite whatsoever for uh, another vote of any kind. That was just the last thing that they want. They don't don't want to be asked again. Uh, Even even the Remainers that I found, and there were some. (laughs) um, You found both of them. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I found a very small handful. Um, They said, you know, I don't agree with it, but I just, I, I don't want to go through that again. And wow. I don't know anyone who does. Excellent. And moving on now, Oxfam is facing a charity commission inquiry after a bombshell Times investigation reported allegations of sexual impropriety by senior aid workers in earthquake hit Haiti in 2010. The charity's deputy chief executive, Peña Lawrence, has resigned over the scandal, uh, which also includes allegations in other countries where Oxfam has worked, including the UK. HuffPost UK reported on Tuesday that Oxfam was scrambling to ensure safety in its high street shops after being forced to admit thousands of volunteers work alongside children without criminal records checks. Here's International Development Secretary Penny Mordaunt today on the scandal. I will be guided in my decisions about Oxfam depending on the charity's response to requirements and questions I have raised with them and by the Charity Commission's investigation. But no organisation is too big or our work with them too complex for me to hesitate to remove funding from them. Uh, we are joined now by George Bowden. Hello, George. Hello. Reporter here, HuffPost, who has been looking into this. Um, give us a bit of an update on where we are, because it seems like this was a really big global story. And now it's come down right to the charity shop that you know on your street. That's right. I think this all started to become a bit closer to home, I think, on Monday, uh, when Helen Evans, who is the Oxfam's former head of safeguarding, spoke to Channel 4 News. And she said uh, she knew of at least three instances of uh, allegations of child abuse in UK stores in just one month in 2015. Um, And that focused our attention a bit closer to home, as I said, on the high street here. Um, And what we found quite quickly is that hosts of volunteers, loads of volunteers, 23,000 of them, are working in these stores alongside children as young as 14, um, but they have no criminal records checks. So there's there's not necessarily a, a DBS check, what they call a DBS check, um, for these uh, volunteers when they come into the store to do some shifts. And they may well be working alongside colleagues who are 14. Oxfam accepts applications from 14-year-olds to work in its stores. And does even like the Duke of Edinburgh Award get people to work in these shops? So it's really sort of Absolutely. across, you know, sort of things that you trust, I guess. Yeah, the Duke of Edinburgh Award scheme have said they're going to review its position on, on all of this. And at the same time, Oxfam is saying now it is going to pursue criminal records checks for the 23,000 volunteers. So it's saying, you know, maybe things do need to change in the light of of what are 
allegations coming from a whistleblower. Um, it knew about these allegations. It was an Oxfam employee that spoke out. So Oxfam facing some questions about why it didn't act sooner. Um, and we, we're still unclear as to whether the Charity Commission is going to look into uh, some of these claims in the UK. We know that they're going to look into the claims abroad, um, but we are still waiting on an update on what exactly the inquiry will, will look into. Paul, I mean, this is a sort of unbelievable story in a way and yet when you talk to people who are involved in any kind of operations with these charities they say no it is completely believable and mm. this is the kind of thing which sort of be known and it's a bit like MPs expenses and it's a bit like the sort of sex harassment in Hollywood it's like the, the, uh, it's been hidden in plain sight people have known mm. about this for yeah. ages but it takes a whistleblower to have the real guts and courage to come forward and, and try and put it on the record and a courageous newspaper like the Times to go for it um, so that's why it's interesting and What's uh, also been really, really notable in the last week is it's not just Oxfam, that there are other charities uh, working in, uh, you know, the developed world that actually have similar problems. And you have to keep coming back to this problem. And, you know, as a bloke, I keep saying to myself, you know, God, blokes, if women were doing the, running these projects, I don't think we'd be getting all these stories about prostitutes being used in Haiti and underage girls and underage boys. It's the blokes. It's these sort of 50-year-old blokes who just can't help themselves. And that's the most depressing thing about it. And the, it's fair to say that the charity hasn't covered itself in glory over this. We know that they were aware of these things. You know that Instead of sort of sacking people, they sort of eased them out a little bit. And they, yeah. I don't use the word cover-up, but it certainly wasn't, Hidden, you know, it certainly wasn't made open to people, was it, Rachel? So, do you think that or what happens next? I mean, there's talk of the government holding back money from Oxfam. Is that? I mean, Penny Morton says that could legitimately happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think th th they weren't exactly open about what the allegations were when they reported them to to government Oxfam, and um, yeah, I think that the, the the problem there is going to be the trust, isn't it? It's the this lack of yeah. transparency that's always going to be a bigger problem sometimes than the incident its actual self. Um, so I don't know what I don't know I don't know what happens next <laughs> really. I think the government are really really keen to protect international aid that 0.7 percent aid target. You know they they think it's a really good thing. They think it's a moral act of government. They've they've inherited it from Labour. They're going to stick to it. Theresa May is as wedded to it as Cameron was and Brown and Blair. And it's something that we could, should be really proud of. And in order to protect it, you're going to have to try and root out some of the bad practice because if you don't, then the wider sort of Daily Express campaign against the whole like, aid funding per se is going to really, really snowball. Because even people like Priti Patel, the former International Development Secretary, before she got that job, she made noises about wanting to cut this 0.7%. And then when she got there, she didn't do that at all. She talked about reforming it and that kind of stuff. But it seems that people generally are wedded to this. Um, I've got some sort of a, a quiz on uh, on aid here, this week's quiz. But uh -huh. no, there's no funny puns in it, given the top so, so subject matter. But top 10 countries receiving UK aid in 2016, oh. according to the Department of International Trade. Sorry, International Development. Thank you, pardon. Uh, George, can you name one of the top 10 countries who received UK aid? I want to say Haiti, but I don't know whether it will anymore. I don't, I don't know whether we... No, it didn't. It wasn't one of the top 10 in 2016. Uh, top 10 you're going to tell me India aren't you no I'm not going to tell you uh, right, okay. Rachel um, Uganda I don't know no it's not very good is it we're not very <laughs> we've got to get, we've got guess what's in the top 10 yeah yes pick, pick, guess um, the country uh, let's say Sudan uh, South Sudan is in there yeah that was 8 that got about 150 million what do you uh, reckon George South Africa does that no 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 Jordan? Jordan, yeah, Jordan did. Jordan got uh, 170 million. 
Iraq. No, not no. Iraq. Mm. I mean, I feel like, should I just tell people? Because <laughs> yeah. Chad? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I, mean, I can, really I can, I, I can hear honest. the listener going, oh my, just tell us. Okay, the top one was Pakistan, which got over 450 million. Then Syria, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Afghanistan, Tanzania, Jordan, South Sudan, Sierra Leone, and Somalia. Right. Okay. I don't know if, are we better for knowing that? No, no, where our money goes. Well, no, particularly yeah. Pakistan. Yeah, that was the that's top one. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, George, what's going to happen now then, do you think? Where do we go from here? Is it waiting for the Charities Commission to report back? Is that what we're I think for? so. That, that inquiry's uh, just begun, really. Um, so, we're going to be waiting to hear what the terms of that inquiry are going to be specifically, and then obviously we'll. we'll see that develop um but there's a there's a kind of growing sense that this is not just oxfam this is other charities i think paul alluded to that earlier um and in terms of high streets we asked uh, all the major charity retailers um whether they had any uh, allegations of abuse in their stores in the past 12 months and three of them came back to say that they did they were british heart foundation age uk and Bernardo's, all of them reported multiple allegations each. So uh, there are there are issues elsewhere. It's not just limited to Oxfam. And actually, uh, I would say that um, Oxfam had 87 incidents uh, reported to it last year. Um, it puts that no, that figure down to uh, increased training around safeguarding. So it says its training um, has worked, given the, the volume of... of reports yeah so. they would say that wouldn't they well, there we okay go. well cheers to George thanks so much for coming in and I'm sure you'll keep reporting on that what's your Twitter handle George uh, at George Bowden B-O-W-D-E-N is give the him a follow he's a, he's a, he's a good lad okay. cheers thanks George <laughs> thank you Move on now to the Department for Work and Pensions. And Kate, I think there's a committee report that's coming out this week which talks about public trust in the system yes that's right. So the select committee has been taking evidence for a few weeks now from disabled people who are moving from disability living allowance to the personal independence payment, which is a new benefit. Um, and they're all undergoing mandatory reassessments by um, the dreaded ATOS and Capita, um, the companies employed by the DWP to uh, carry out the assessments. And according to their evidence, um, there's so many mistakes um, and wrong decisions in this process that trust in the people who are undergoing the reassessments is at rock bottom. Um, we also spoke to a man called Martin Kaur, um from Manchester who has been blind since he was 11 days old um, and the DWP sent him printed forms to do his reassessment which obviously he couldn't read. That's unbelievable isn't it? He asked for them in braille or online and they said no. They said they just said no? So the, the, only, the only way he could fill in the forms was printed. So he couldn't do it himself, obviously. He had to get his wife to do it's it. It's unbelievable, isn't it? You just hear these things and you think, how can this possibly be allowed to happen? And people wonder why there's no trust in the issues. Have DWP come back to support? Have they said anything? They've basically said that um, most people are satisfied with the, in- with the assessment process. I think it's about 82 or 83% according to them. But the evidence submitted to the DWP committee inquiry suggests that is definitely not the case. Um, even if it is 82 or 83%, that's an awful lot of people who are not satisfied yeah. with this, isn't it? I mean... That's 17%. That's absolutely right. Um, yeah, and the, the thing that Frank Fields Committee are very good at is it working out the qualitative, you know, human stories behind all those statistics. You might just be 17%, but 70% of... That's a lot of people, given the sheer number of benefits there are, um, whose, you know, lives are being made of misery by this the process. And, you know, if the state's for anything, surely it's for, for 
dealing with the most, most vulnerable in the most effective way. And it, I mean, the committee obviously needs lots of credit for exposing it. But equally, it, what's interesting is it's charities like the RNIB who are saying, you know, they've they've been doing their bit to try and help people out. But the whole, it seems as though there's something fundamentally wrong with the way the assessments are working. It just seems, isn't there, that ever since the government from the coalition tried to reform this, there's been a real lack of compassion in the system. That's what it seems to me when I hear these case studies. I remember when I was a local reporter and you get people who are coming in and they, they couldn't walk and they've been asked to do things on there to prove they couldn't walk. All this kind of awful it's stuff. Yeah, it's like a never-ending horror story, um, Pip, it seems. Like every other week, I mean, if you pop Pip into Google News, it's just, yep. you know, just heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story from each individual but they're also just getting it wrong like they aren't they spending like a hundred million on um tribunals yeah yeah and so and like two out of three people are are winning appeals so they're they're not getting it right either they're just getting it wrong the committee wants um all the reassessment sessions to be recorded so that none of the vital evidence can be left out of the decision making um, so we'll see what they come back with. And on you that. know, I think one of the reasons, and it's uh, and to not make a party political point explicitly, but one of the reasons I think that this government gets it in the neck, uh, and sometimes has a real blind spot over things like this, is that actually, it, when it comes down to it, Tory MPs get nowhere near as much casework as Labour MPs. And I was talking to someone this week in the Commons who was saying they were explaining to a, a senior Tory MP, a Labour MP, explaining what they did at the weekend. And they were saying, well, you know, I've got to do X hours of casework and then I've got to do blah, blah, blah. I've got to do 50 cases tomorrow. And they were saying, well, this Tory MP was saying, what? what? What's that? And they were saying, yeah, casework. That's what I have to do a lot of the time. And, then, and the Tory MP had no idea. Basically, they were in a leafy shire who didn't really have the same problem. Whereas Labour MPs, to their credit, you know, they can't wave a magic wand for these people, but at least they know there's an issue because their mailbags mail full of it. I'm sure there's some Tories that would just... I'd say they get, they get. Of course, they are in lots some. of parts of the country, particularly the places the marginal seats were. Yeah. But in a, a lot of the as leafier a, a parts rule, though, of the yeah. country, then you know, if you're in Maidenhead, for example, who's MP for Maidenhead? <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. Um, you know, would you necessarily be aware of all these pip issues? Well, Maybe if not. you're the MP for Maidenhead and you're listening, and I know you are, Teresa, then please, uh, please tweet us hashtag Commons People to let us know if you're aware of the issues. And we're going to start doing that from next week. By the way, we're going to start reading out some of the best tweets we get and the best comments we get. So leave a comment on iTunes if you're mm-hmm. that way inclined, or tweet us hashtag Commons People um, because I feel like. You lot are boring me in this room. <laughs> and I want to hear from the listeners a bit more, all right? Because, what, what you, what, yeah, exactly. So just, I want a bit more from the listeners. Um, before we go, there was obviously um, a really tragic story that came out uh, as we record this on Wednesday. Um, when you go to the House of, when you go to the House of Commons, for those who haven't been there, and you come off Westminster Tube, there's like a little sort of almost secret way to get into the estate through the tube station, through these revolving doors. And as you walk around there, Certainly in the past couple of years, there is always two, three, four homeless people sleeping there or beds made up from where they were or evidence that someone has slept there, coppers evening standard. And it was today that someone actually was found dead there this morning, wasn't it, Kate? Yeah, um, this morning the entrance was sealed off um, and a man um, was found unresponsive about quarter past seven this, um, on Wednesday morning. Um, paramedics tried to resuscitate him, but um, they couldn't and he was pronounced dead at the scene just yards from where MPs go into work every day. Um, So it's obviously really brought it home literally to Parliament's doorstep 
the scale of the rough sleeping problem. I mean, at this point, police haven't officially confirmed that he is a rough sleeper, but by all accounts, it sounds like he was. Yeah. Um, and we know homelessness has, has, has risen, don't we? In, in, yeah, in it's certainly years. gone up. It's rocketed in the last few years, which again... Doubled since 2010. Yeah, and it's, and it's obviously not just London, it's Manchester, it's yeah. other places, but London is particularly acute. And I would be amazed if Jeremy Corbyn didn't raise this in Promises Questions next week. Mm. Absolutely amazed. It's right up his street. You know, this literally on the doorstep yeah. of the House of Commons, the two yards away from that revolving door that lots of MPs go in every day. And they would have come past the, the people that have been sleeping there early in the morning or uh, late at night, and they would have seen them. And they've, they've got a regular spot, some of them. They mm. come and go, but the, they seem to have a regular spot. And um, a lot of MPs, I think, will be feeling, crikey, could we have done more? And it's interesting, because when we did our um, focus groups in the up to last year's election, one of the topics that kept coming up was homelessness. And I personally was surprised by that because I thought, naively, and pardon me for being cynical, if you've got a home, it's not something which would particularly be one of your top concerns. But of course, people can see homelessness, can see it as a very visible sign of the state of a country. And I guess that, that you know, uh, what, like you said, Paul, this is something which Jeremy Corbyn, I'm sure, will bring up to show, look, we talk about statistics a lot, particularly in PMQs. Here's a, in the same way with the gentleman who got sent the form when he couldn't read it was blind these are the real people aren't behind the statistics exactly and it's been brought very very geographically close to home for Theresa May now I think so next week uh, Parliament comes back it comes back on Tuesday I think Paul, it does it? Get an extra day off on Monday extra. oh have we, have we got have we got a day off no you don't but Actually, Parliament I work on Sunday and I work on Saturday because on Saturday it's the UKIP emergency extraordinary yes. general meeting where they're going to decide <laughs> if Henry Bolton's I can't believe how excited you are I'm not even working and I'm still going to it I I'm going to take the time back don't worry but I'm so excited about this <laughs> I feel like my life's been leading up to this moment you are actually like I'm je- yeah. excitedly drumming is it your because, hands. Is, are you excited because basically now this is the sort of coffin being laid into the ground and yeah. people are hammering the nails on and UK's coffin and, and you're going to put a lead weight on top <laughs> yeah. of it make sure it never gets out again. Have, you, uh, have you written a book about that. I think I might become UKIP leader this week. I think if I just, I think everyone's going to like knock themselves out and it's like a Mexican standoff and I'll be like the one guy left. Well, that great. brings us back to full circle because Boris's speech, he made a very good point, yeah. a very valid point, which, which, which was basically that not only was he not a Farageist uh, on Brexit, he was a liberal, um, but more importantly, that UKIP has died since the Brexit vote. And it's the only country in Western Europe where the far right or the immigration as a massive concern has been actually... An, Im- pro- an anti-immigration party has basically died, and that's UKIP. The rest of Western Europe, which hasn't tackled migration as effectively, you might say, um, still has the real worrying signs of the far right on the rise. And I can tell that people have gone off UKIP because no one reads articles about them anymore. Aww. It used to be a tie that you put Nigel Farage in a headline and it was the most red thing in the world. Not Sorry, anymore. Nigel, mate. I'm trying my best. Anyway, so we'll see you all next week for that and more. And remember to uh, leave your comments on iTunes and tweet us, hashtag Commons people with your thoughts, any questions you want answered, and we will talk about them in the show because why the hell not? See you everyone. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.